On the outskirts of London, not far from the River Thames, a cleric stands inside a huge new church. It's a magnificent building, and rather unusual. Its nave, that's the main public area of the church, is perfectly round. The man listens in satisfaction as the voices of the choir echo around the nave's curves, spiralling upwards into the high ceiling above. This is the new church of the Knights Templar, built at vast expense in the grounds of their London headquarters. Inside, those round walls are sparsely decorated, but that doesn't mean they're cheap. The Templars are one of the richest organisations in Europe. The church is made from the finest limestone money can buy, shipped all the way from Normandy. When the spring sunlight outside catches its walls, they gleam like white gold. The church is round because it's designed to mimic another very famous round one, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. There, an identically designed rotunda surrounds the shrine of Christ's tomb. And that's where the Knights Templar were founded about 65 years earlier. Their mission, to use their lethal fighting skills to protect Jerusalem for Christ and Christians, and to make a ton of money while they're at it. The churchman who stands listening to holy songs swirl around him feels well at home, because he's none other than Heraclius, the Patriarch of Jerusalem. He's the highest-ranking cleric in the Catholic world, aside from the Pope. Jerusalem is his manor, and the OG Holy Sepulchre is his normal stomping ground. Heraclius is here today, in March 1185, to bless this new temple church. But that's not his only goal. Although Heraclius is very happy to support the work of the Templars, he's not in the habit of travelling 3,000 miles just to sprinkle a bit of holy water and say a few prayers. No, Patriarch Heraclius has an ulterior motive. He's come to England because he wants to propose something to the Plantagenet king, Henry II, who's also here today in the Temple Church, with half of his family. It's all to do with what's going on back in the Holy Land. In 1185, the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem is under threat of falling to the fearsome general Saladin, as we know from our last episode, when we went there on pilgrimage with William Marshall. Heraclius has been travelling for so long that he doesn't know quite how dire things have got. But it's obvious that the situation is not looking good. So he's come all the way to England to make an offer to Henry. An offer no truly righteous king could refuse. You're 52 years old. You've done it all in Europe. Your cousins in Jerusalem need you. Drop everything here hand it over to your kids and come back with me to be crowned as the next king of Jerusalem. Use all your military nous and political genius to do something that really matters. Save the Christian world. Fast track your way to heaven. 
Heraclius formally made that offer to Henry a few months ago, when he first arrived in England. Since then, Henry's been mulling it over, and he's promised Heraclius he'll make his decision after the temple church is dedicated. But there's a lot to weigh up. I mean, to start with, there's precedent at stake. Back in the day, Henry's grandfather, Count Fulk of Anjou, did exactly what Heraclius is now asking. He dropped everything and went and licked the Holy Land into shape. Before that, Henry's great-uncle Robert was one of the commanders of the First Crusade. So this is kind of a family tradition. And on top of that, Henry has muttered in the past that one day he will indeed go on crusade. He's actually said it three times. It's not a great look to talk the holy talk and then not walk the holy walk. But weighed against all that is the fact that Jerusalem is, frankly, a viper's nest at the moment. The politics are bad. The people are worse. Just look at Heraclius. The guy is done up in all his fancy vestments and finery, but it's an open secret that he's massively corrupt and a world-class shagger, and Henry would know all about that. But here's the real sticking point. Can Henry really leave his empire to run itself while he gallivants around the Holy Land? The French king, Philip II, is always a threat, and then there's his own family. Could he really leave these people alone with his empire after everything that's happened in recent years? As the sound of the choir fills the perfect rotunda once more, his thoughts must be swirling round and round. He has a huge decision to make. And as always, the wrong one could bring his empire crashing to the ground. I'm Dan Jones, and from something else in Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, a dynasty to die for. Episode 18, The Reunion. So, what was Henry's decision? Well, as you've probably guessed, Heraclius, the holy man, is severely disappointed. He storms out of England in a truly filthy mood, using some very unholy language about Henry and the Plantagenets as he goes. It's not hard to see why. Heraclius has dragged himself all the way from Jerusalem to London. He's given Henry his best sales pitch, literally chucking himself at the old king's feet at one point, grabbing his ankles and crying on his toes. But it's all for nothing. Because, as they say where I live, Henry mugs him right off. Thanks, but no thanks. Henry tells Heraclius he's happy to donate as much money as is needed, but he isn't coming in person. Before he's even over the horizon, he tells the holy man, Philip II of France will be at the borders of the Plantagenet Empire with his armies. Heraclius has to concede that point, but he isn't happy about it. The Lord whom you have forsaken will desert you and leave you devoid of heavenly grace, he says. Then he swishes off in a sulk. 
and as he leaves England, his parting shot to Henry is a real zinger. Henry has got tired of Heraclius criticising him, and tells him to watch his mouth and remember who he's talking to. In response, Heraclius dares him to do a Thomas Beckett on him. Mic drop. And the huffy old patriarch has gone. If you want to hear more about the crazy politics of Jerusalem, join me for this week's subscriber episode. But for now, we're staying with Henry, and he has a lot on his mind. There's the danger from Philip II, but even worse, tensions with his own family are, as always, threatening to undermine the empire. So for the rest of this episode, we're going to look at the aftermath of the Plantagenet Brothers' War and young Henry's death. Because while we were off in Jerusalem with William Marshall, Henry has been trying to cope with his family again. And there's been a major change to the family dynamic. But we'll get to that. First up, let's do a Plantagenet roll call and see where everyone stands. There's Henry's eldest daughter Matilda, still exiled from Germany and not looking like going back any time soon. His other daughters are generally staying out of trouble. His youngest son, John, is 18 and needs somewhere to rule ASAP. And his other two sons, Richard and Geoffrey, are, as usual, fighting each other somewhere in Aquitaine. Or is it Brittany? I mean, who can even keep up? But back in the mix, there's someone who Henry thought he'd left in the rearview mirror long ago. His wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine. As U-turns go, this is up there with the best of them. Henry's had Eleanor under house arrest for more than a decade, never missing an opportunity to torment her. But now, he's not only let her out, he's actively doing his best to be nice to her. Eleanor is now allowed to leave Salisbury and travel around England. She's even there at the Temple Church for the ceremony and meeting with Heraclius. And she's been given a proper staff of servants. In the 1170s, she was allowed just one handmaid. Now, in the 1180s, she has a whole bevy of noble ladies-in-waiting, paid for by the king. They wear fine furs in the winter and silks in the summer, and the king has even been buying what's referred to in the royal records as bell-bell, medieval slang roughly translating as bling. Even better... Eleanor has been allowed to see her kids again. That includes Matilda, exiled from Germany, who stays with her for a year, bringing her brood of Plantagenet grandchildren. It also includes the boys, Richard and Geoffrey, whom she's barely seen since she encouraged their rebellion in the war without love. And then, even more astonishingly, Eleanor is allowed to do something she hasn't done in ten years, something she probably thought she'd never do again. She gets to leave England. In the summer of 1185, she's summoned to Henry's court in Normandy and sets sail on board the Royal Galley in a fleet of eight ships. It's not a trip to her beloved Aquitaine, but it's a huge step closer. Eleanor is doing things that have been not just forbidden, but unimaginable for the last decade of her life. We don't know for certain what she's thinking, but she must have been buzzing. 
That said, I don't think Eleanor is completely taken in by all this luxury and freedom. She's not stupid, and she's known her husband Henry long enough to realise that he never does anything purely out of the goodness of his heart. If he did, he'd be off in Jerusalem now fighting Saladin. No, Henry has turned to Eleanor because he wants something. Because he needs something. Because, you might say, he's desperate. When Henry III chose his royal advisers, he ended up with some very untrustworthy power grabbers, which led to poor management decisions, rebellions, and at least one person in prison. Why didn't he use Indeed? Well, Indeed wasn't around back then, but it is today. Indeed is the ultimate hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and matching technology that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. When I was hiring, I didn't use Indeed either, and the process was very slow and stressful, so I wish I had. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a £100 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash dynasty. Indeed.com slash dynasty. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For the Plantagenets, Henry the Young King's death from dysentery back in 1183 had changed everything. Eleanor's sudden change in status reflects that, even though it takes a little while for it to work through the political system. To get our heads around it, we need to step into old Henry's shoes and understand what he's wrestling with politically. Put simply, after the young king dies, his father is forced to rethink the whole structure of his empire. He's not only lost his eldest son, but his co-king and heir. What he comes up with is this. Richard, his eldest surviving son and the most obviously capable one, should step up to be his new heir. That means moving into line to inherit England, Normandy and Anjou. Geoffrey can stay in Brittany. The kid is trouble, but what are you going to do? Leave him where he is and hope for the best seems to be the most reasonable solution. Which leaves John. Henry has a real soft spot for John, the baby of the family. Which is understandable. He's clever, he can be devious, and during his education he's shown a weirdly intense appetite for the really nerdy bits of government. Henry's into this stuff too, and so they bond over it. They both understand that boring lawmaking and tax collecting is the real route to power. So Henry is determined to find something interesting for John to do. The only thing is, he's out of land to give him. 
or he was until the young king died. Now, Henry reasons that if he's bumping Richard up to England, Normandy and Anjou, then he can reasonably ask Richard to hand over Aquitaine to John. That's fair enough, right? Right? Wrong. Or at least wrong if you're Richard. From Richard's point of view, yes, he absolutely should be bumped up to the role of heir, But no, he absolutely should not be asked to relinquish control of Aquitaine. He's been fighting to keep this place under control alongside Henry virtually every day of his life since the 1170s. He isn't going to give it up without a fight. So that's where things stand in 1185, when Henry sensibly opts against heading off to Crusader country. For two years, he's been trying to badger Richard into agreeing to his plan, and for two years, Richard has been telling him, not in so many words, where to stick it. At one point, Henry thinks briefly about raising an army and going to war with Richard, but he's trained his son a little too well for that to be a tempting prospect. So that's why Henry turns to the only card he has left, Eleanor. It must have stuck in his craw to start sucking up to her again. He can afford the bell-bell and the fur-lined posh girls, but that doesn't mean he's happy about it. But as the old saying goes, needs must when the devil drives. So when Henry brings Eleanor over to Normandy in the late spring of 1185, it's not to have one last go at rekindling their romance. They're not Ben Affleck and J-Lo. Henry intends to wheel out his wife as a trap for his son. Around May, Henry sends Richard a message he knows will absolutely twist his melon. In essence, it says, Your mum's back. She's the rightful duchess. You know it, and I know she's your favourite parent. So give her back what's hers, and then we'll sort out the future. It's a political masterstroke. Eleanor can hardly refuse. Her position is still tenuous, and she's being offered Aquitaine, her heart's desire. Meanwhile, Richard's stuck too. If there's the smallest chance that his mother will inch closer back to full freedom, he's going to take it. He can't point-blank turn down Henry's suggestion, even if he suspects his father is being disingenuous. Which, as usual, Henry is. He has no real intention of letting Eleanor go back to ruling Aquitaine in the long term, but acting like he's considering it buys him some valuable time. He needs to restructure his empire in a way that will give him the fewest headaches. So he sets up an arrangement whereby Richard continues to run Aquitaine, with Eleanor allowed to rubber stamp certain decisions. Naturally, he himself will continue to have the final say over big political decisions. It's not perfect, but it just about keeps the show on the road. In the meantime, Henry's brain is in overdrive, looking for some way to solve the bigger problem of the rival sons. And for a moment, just briefly, he thinks he might have found it. It's a left-field solution for sure, 
but it's one that might be crazy enough to succeed. Henry realises that there could be somewhere else he can send his youngest son John to rule, somewhere he's had trouble with more or less all his reign. This is a place we visited before in our story. A land where the grass is green and the cows can be deadly. Ireland. And we'll be heading back to the Emerald Isle next time on This Is History. If you're craving more Plantagenet drama now, I've got you covered. Join me on This Is History Plus, where every week I reveal the weird details, fun facts and fascinating subplots we don't have time for in the main story. This time we're going to be talking about the Crusades and finding out more about the renowned General Saladin. And on top of that, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.